You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hey, Taylor, and hello, all you equity leaders out there listening. Hello, everyone, and hello to you too, Cindy. What have we got going on today? Well, buckle up, because today's interview is with Kentucky State Representative Josie Raymond. Not only is she a former educator and Lee member, but she is also the first elected official in the Kentucky House to give birth while serving. She is a groundbreaker. Wow, Josie must have some serious life coordination skills to be able to pull off such an important job and keep a family alive. I can barely keep plants alive. (laughs) Right? Same. She's pretty amazing. And all the mom stuff aside, Josie gives a heavy dose of real talk about what it takes to get a campaign off the ground and fight for change when the odds are stacked against her. It's a really fun listen. I can't wait. Let's get to it. Awesome. Well, pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the leader's table with Kentucky State Representative Josie Raymond. Representative Raymond, welcome to the leader's table. Thanks so much for spending time with me. We are so glad to have you with us today. When I think about your story, I think about things like firsts. You are synonymous with breaking barriers for women in politics in ways that are unique. Why why do you think it is that we're still talking about firsts like this when it comes to women in politics in any state or any body of a legislature in 2020? Well, the, the barriers are immense um, and barriers for all kinds of populations. We can talk about barriers for women. We can talk about barriers for young people. I'm 35. We can talk about barriers for parents of young children. And the barriers are, are immense um, and they differ place to place. And so it's it's hard to get to get a handle on them. And you have to have uh, you have to have certain sort of resolve to, to tackle them. I think it helps if you have some naivete. Uh, going into it as well. And then you've got to have certain privileges, right? Like I've got an incredible partner um, and I couldn't be where I am without him. But when I think about barriers in Kentucky, because I'm working with other women who have young children, trying to increase um, the number of women with young children we have in office here. And, um, you know, what... Think of who your network is. If you're in your 30s, your network's in their 30s. And then think about the net worth of your network when you're calling and asking for donations. You think about things like, uh, can you take off work anytime you want to campaign? I used up my vacation days um, from my full-time job at a university when I was campaigning. I think Kentucky might be the only legislature where we're still paid a day rate. We don't have a salary. So uh, every day I work in the legislature, I make $188.22. But in our interim, when we're not in our full legislative session, I am uh, permitted to work six days a month. So, you know, when I'm thinking about the, the, the needs to support my household, um, you know, am I earning what I need to? And can I find a supplemental job that's going to let me disappear six days a month and three months a year? Um, so these are just some of the challenges that, you know, so many people are facing and why we don't have, you know, adequate representation, as you named. And what prepared you to not only to lead, but to lead with the integrity and with the forward kind of forward-facing perspective that you bring to the office? Uh, For as long as I can remember, I have just been on fire to end poverty. Uh, 
And, you know, it, when people say, why'd you run for office or what are you about? I say, oh, I'm trying to end poverty in America. And it, it gets a laugh, you know, people chuckle. And then I say, I'm 100% serious. So we're going to start here in the Kentucky legislature and see what we can get done. But uh, that has just been my passion for my entire career and my life. I was a free lunch kid uh, here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, uh, and then I was a Pell Grant kid at Columbia University in New York. And then I've spent my career in journalism, nonprofits, teaching, higher ed, um, working with low-income students and families to empower them to have more choices in their lives. And so for me, after after those work experiences and acquiring certain skills, uh, I thought, you know, how can I deepen my impact again? Uh, and I thought, aha, it's elected office. Uh, and, you know, now I've been in about a year and a half, and, and I think the jury's out <laughs> on whether uh, that's truly the place that we're going to end poverty. But, but that's what it was for me. It was, it was a laser focus on an end goal that, um, that made some of these barriers um, fade away or seem insignificant. What made you know that you had to run for office in order to, to chip away at this big goal? Well, like I said, I'd been for more than 10 years, I've been working with low income students and their families. And I had done it in Indianapolis, where I taught seventh and eighth grade in high poverty schools and then, uh, you know, wanted to make a deeper impact. So I moved to Oakland, California. I was working at a college access nonprofit. We had students from eighth grade through college graduation and their families. Um, and then when I began my own family, I moved home, um, just right to my home district. I'm just a mile from mom and a mile from dad here in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and started working with first generation college students at the university of Louisville and the, the, the challenges and the dreams and the hopes of these students in Indy and in Oakland and Louisville were so similar. And the, um, the systems that were holding them back were so similar. So after 10 years of doing the work, I, you know, I think I'd gotten pretty skilled and pretty good at sort of granting them dignity and hearing their stories and, and partnering with them and putting band-aids on their problems. You know, you can't afford your books this semester. Okay, we're going to do this and this and this. Uh, and now you can. But, you know, I, I felt like I had more work to do on the man-made systems that had given them these challenges, right? Things like uh, mental health. Uh, health disparities, poverty, um, child abuse and neglect. And, and so I thought to get to systems level change, you know, it's, it's a matter of public policy uh, and political will. And so that's what drove me to run for office. Hmm. What's the connection between being uh, a free lunch kid and having this burning desire to fix the wrongs that are kind of built into a system that um, doesn't end poverty? and what you're doing today. How do, how do those things run together to, to drive what you do in office? Well, you know, I, I share as often as I can that I'm a former poor person um, because, you know, poverty is stigmatized, stigmatized in such a way um, in America. And it, it's always been so important for me to share my story of being a free lunch kid. Now, I, I want to qualify it always that I grew up in poverty with privilege. You know, my grandparents bought my parents a home. Uh, and that's how I was able to access certain schools, uh, have certain neighbors, make certain friends, you know, and then I'd go to their, their homes, their parents had gone to college. And so I was able to, to really straddle class lines. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's so frustrating when I share that story and I get the response of, well, good for you. You're so tenacious. You're so talented. Um, 
you know, if only everyone would, would do what you did. If you can do it, anybody can do it. And I say that's absolutely incorrect. You know, I had incredible privileges. I, I babysat for the family next door. The mom was a lawyer in a great marriage and provided me a role model, uh, you know, that I, that I, that I think back to, to this day. And so I always want to say, uh, it's not a matter of being tenacious. You know, people living in poverty today, kids, free lunch kids across this country are tenacious as hell, but the barriers they're facing are, are so great. And they don't have uh, some of the advantages and the privileges that I had. They might not be receiving the quality of education that I was able to access. They don't have the mentors that I have. And it's man-made systems that are keeping them there. Uh, and if, if men made them, then, then men and women can unmake them to create opportunity for everyone. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of those systems. Um, obviously, as a free lunch kid, you, uh, you experienced a system that wasn't working for some. And today, as a legislator, you are holding the pen or at least and or influencing lots of other pens in trying to remake systems and and develop them so that that poverty is not a scourge of our society. What does that look like for you? What's the agenda and and how will we know if we're moving the ball at all? Well, you know, I told you I go into rooms and say I'm trying to end poverty in America. <laughs> and it gets a laugh because I think people think it's impossible. Uh, and I think it's inevitable. Um, I share stories uh, of my family and growing up in poverty and, and why was that the case? And, and I'm very honest, my parents made mistakes. Um, you know, we were dealing with um, things like, like lower workforce participation or um, domestic violence addiction. Uh, these were things we were experiencing in my household that led to my poverty as a child. Um, and, and my parents made some mistakes, but but too often, um, there's there's blame put on folks for the situations that they're living in, right? Uh, now that I'm uh, I've, I've clawed my way to the middle class, I make plenty of mistakes where I'm at. I'm not punished in the same way. Um, so a lot of it in the legislature is trying to undo the stigma around poverty and around need. Uh, in the Kentucky State Legislature this year, uh, we, we were in session from January through April. The top priority bill from, from the majority party, now I'm a Democrat, I'm in the super minority here in Kentucky, but um, the, the top priority bill, it was called House Bill 1. And this bill was to, pub, to punish people on public assistance. It, it, its stated goal was to end public assistance fraud, uh, but what this bill would have done was institute lifetime bans um, from Medicaid and from food stamps for families that sold their EBT card. And when I was standing up and speaking about this bill on the floor, I said, I keep hearing you all say public assistance fraud. I know you're picturing some, some Disney villain uh, who's perpetrating this, but I'm telling you, it's a mother trying to make Christmas happen. Uh, and if you institute a lifetime ban on Medicaid and food stamps, you think you're punishing adults, but you're harming a generation of children. Uh, so a lot of it is is uh, really public education. You know, if if all leaders brought their values and their passion to their legislating in the way that you describe, I think we would we'd be having such a better conversation. How do you bring others to your ideas in the legislature, in community, and generally? My top legislative priority has been early childhood education. Um, we talk a lot about daycare subsidy rates. 
But in particular, I'm fighting for pre-K for all. For me, that's full day, state-funded, high-quality pre-K for every three- and four-year-old in Kentucky. You know, we've got a long ways to go on that, and there's going to be a big bill. So for a couple of years, I've been making the case to my colleagues, and we've come a long way just in that period of time. You know, my first day of office, uh, January 2018, I introduced the bill, pre-K for all, snap your fingers, here it is. Uh, you know, and I, and I was just about laughed out of the chamber. Um, but a year later, uh, when I brought it again, I had a Republican co-sponsor um, from a different part of the state. And it, it, between us, we cover a lot of, uh, a lot of the Venn diagram of, uh, <laughs> political persuasion. Um, you know, he's a, he's a millionaire pharmacist and philanthropist in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And he is my partner on this because we have such a passion for supporting children. The chairwoman of the house education committee, uh, who is a Republican said, uh, she thinks we ought to have it. Uh, I had built a coalition that included everyone from the Teachers Association here in Louisville to the um, Chamber of Commerce, the Democratic Socialists of America were on board. Um, so in just that short period of time, we, we built this uh, pretty amazing coalition, and no one's arguing with the, the brain science, right? The pre-K helps kids. Uh, and, the, you know, the data is incredible right? Uh, higher lifetime earnings, more likely to graduate from high school and college, better health for their, for their entire life, not just for themselves, but for their own children. So, so I make my pitch, right? That pre-K is the, is the silverest bullet as a really a three generation approach to disrupting generational poverty. Um, you know, and that'll get some people on board and then others I need to pitch, you know, we're going to professionalize the workforce. We're going to create jobs. And then, uh, other places I make the pitch, you know, families are stretched so thin with daycare bills. I share my number all the time. Last year I spent $22,000 on childcare. Uh, when kindergarten starts, we get rich, you know, because <laughs> our kids go to public school. So, so, so it's been finding uh, opportunities and the angles for everyone, right? And then it gets into some personal philosophy, right? Who, who am I willing to work with? My partner, um, my co-sponsor on the pre-K bill is someone that I disagree with on just about everything else. Um, you know, and I've had questions from folks in my party, how, how do you align yourself with that person? Uh, and I say, we share a deep passion for children. Um, and I think we can get something done. And so uh, that, that's been another thing just in, in the time I've been in the legislature is, is working to develop my own leadership style. You know, you think going in and by, because uh, of course campaigning is very different from from serving and legislating. But you know, am I am I that person who works behind the scenes, or do I work in public? How do I use the media? Uh, you know, what do I do that's relational? What do I do that's confrontational or adversarial? Um, when do I chain myself to my desk? Uh, and I've not I've not gotten there. Uh, or when does my caucus lay down on the floor? You know, or, or or flee the state? These sorts of strategies you see sometimes. We've not gotten there. Um, but then you realize that, uh, that to really be effective, it, it, you got to do a little bit of everything, uh, at certain times. And so it's, it's calibrating those strategies and, and, you know, you don't get to a point where you're like, okay, 20% of the time I'm this 15% of the time I'm this, but, uh, but the longer I'm there, I think the closer I get, um, and the more effective I'm becoming. Hmm. What's a favorite failure, uh, a failure or a moment that, um, Clearly, you lost or, or didn't accomplish something, but that taught you so much that you hold it in high, high regard. 
I'm going to disagree with the premise of a favorite failure, Jason. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think back to um, to that first the first day that I mentioned when I introduced pre K for all, um, and immediately um, the the lobbyist of our of our state's largest school district. We've got a hundred thousand kids in this district. Sixty six percent of them on free lunch. Six thousand of them homeless. Uh, came up to me and said, "We can't do this. We don't have the space in the buildings." And I said, "We'll then build more buildings." And, you know, she looked at me like I was an alien. And and for a time I was embarrassed and I thought, have I overreached? Have I, have I uh, created an opportunity for folks to not take me seriously? But the further I get from it, the more grateful I am that I, that I made that bold decision uh, and took the flack for it at the time. Um, because it started a conversation that, you know, had I introduced an incremental bill, you know, we're going to get... We're going to get a thousand more kids in pre-K next year by doing this and that, you know, um, or we're going to do half day or we're going to compromise on quality. You know, um, I know we wouldn't have been able to build the coalition and, and start the conversations that we have. But but it took some, uh, you know, I did it at personal cost, um, taking a bold step like that and, and presenting what, what seemed like a wild idea to folks. And what would you, what would you say is the top learning you took from that experience? That uh, that we've got to we got to go big and bold. You know, it reminds me of my campaign when I filed to run for this seat. And again, everybody thought I was crazy. And um, you know, we can talk about why, but but I said that the the urgency of our work uh, is so great that I I can be embarrassed, uh, I can lose. But if we can start these conversations, bring more people into them, um, and move it forward, then then that's worth doing, even if you laugh at me. Let's talk a little bit more about that moment that you decided to run for office. Um, take us to the moment where you decided, I'm going to run for office and going to do it because. What's the because and how did you know that you absolutely needed to make the run? I told you I'd been working with high poverty students for a long time uh, and felt just a just a urgent, fiery need to, to make an impact uh, on their lives. And, and looking around, I thought, um, I've, I've got the passion for this. I've got the work ethic for this. I can learn what I need to learn. I can do what I need to do. I've been a classroom teacher. I can stand up and give a speech, uh, in front of a room full of folks. And so I think I've acquired the skills that I would need to do it. And when, when I had this inclination, uh, to run for office and to try and make an impact on poverty through public policy, it felt like an obligation. So I looked at it, the, the state house role in my district, and uh, you hear stories about people move to certain places to run, and they're really strategic about it. I, I bought a house off of a FaceTime tour from California to Kentucky. I was pregnant with my second. I had to put him somewhere. And so we got home. Uh, and I started looking and it's this drive you'll see through my career. Uh, and I said, you know, there's a leadership gap for us in the state house. Uh, this is a district, um, that shares my values. This is when I grew up in, uh, service here feels even more meaningful than it did across the country. I got incredible support from Lee. Uh, I got great coaching. I, I there was a, a, a woman at Lee who said to me early on, she said, you can run the best campaign your district's ever seen. And that has stuck with me 
ever since. And if you've got the skills and the passion, uh, I tell every candidate I meet, you can run the best campaign your district has ever seen. And we're in Kentucky. You know, we're, we got old school campaign tactics here. Uh, so it's really, really true. And, and I thought, uh, well, I'm comfortable enough putting myself out there and losing. You know, I think candidates have to get their heads around that too. What good can come of losing? And really sit down and really think about it, right? Uh, you're going to build relationships. You're going to surface issues. Uh, you might get a better job out of it. So so I agree with you um, that people ought to make the leap and run. But it, it, was those, it was that combination of factors. I mean, when I look back now, I, I had little bitty kids. Uh, and I look back at campaign pictures and I think, what was I doing with that baby on the campaign trail? But uh, at the time, it just felt like the natural next step to take as I was trying to deepen my impact. So I want to walk through some of the details. How did you figure out that you wanted to run for this seat in the legislature, that this was the, the race that was a match for you? Well, well, you know, I got home, got the baby out, got situated, uh, and I was looking at my leadership. And I felt comfortable with my congressional leadership, you know, sharing my values and, and fighting for the folks that I love. Uh, I felt that way at the state Senate level. Uh, um, city council was not an interest for me because as we've talked about, I wanted to pursue these structural systemic issues. And so, um, so I saw this leadership gap in the state house and, you know, um, we had a man in office who'd been there since, you know, I was a little girl in this district and, uh, and now he's become a mentor and a friend, but, um, there were some generational differences and we weren't aligned on everything. Uh, there were a couple of votes that were problematic for me. One was uh, my representative's support of something called the gang bill, which was that if three people uh, were together, um, they could be charged with gang crimes, which, which was just for me, um, you know, a, a racially coded attack on young people. And so, uh, so it was these factors that led me to actually enter a Democratic primary. Uh, I called this man. I left him a message. He didn't call back. I said, I care so much about our community that I'm going to run for this seat. Now, there hadn't been a primary in this district in 26 years. Um, and it's it's a pretty solidly Democratic district. So there, there, so there hadn't been a choice in this district in 26 years. Um, and so we went hard. I launched this campaign. I started knocking doors 14 months early. And now people say to me, we thought you were crazy, uh, but you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And you don't know what people are saying about you behind your back until later when, when they tell you, which they shouldn't ever tell you. But, um, and we were just sharing a, a message that, that, that said, you know, we want the strongest community we can have. And we want your family to have every choice you want to have. But it sounds cliche, but our top issues were healthcare, education, and wages. Um, and this was in contrast to our representative who said that the number one issue facing our district was traffic. Um, so I think that's a pretty clear distillation of the difference um, and why I felt like I could really offer something. Yeah. So, so you found a race that matched you. Many, many new candidates though say, how do I raise the money? How do I get the resources I need to be successful as a candidate? Well, you, you get the nuts and bolts through trainings, right? You're going to have all kinds of spreadsheets. But uh, for me, again, it was that laser focus and that drive, right? You know, if I'm elected, uh, I can do something on poverty, right? And um, so that is what led me to call everyone I've ever known 
uh, and ask them for 20 bucks, 40 bucks, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks. Um, and you know, I remember funny stories, you know, I remember, um, calling my uncle. I've never called my uncle on the phone ever. He lives in Connecticut. And so, of course, when he answered, he thought someone had died. Uh, you know, Josie, what's wrong? Uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm uh, running for state representative. I need 200 bucks. Uh, uh, but I think there's there's also so, so little understanding about money and politics, right? And it really gets a, a bad rap. So it was always important for me um, to both come to understand and then to share. There's, there's such a public education component to campaigning. What's the money for? And so I would often explain, well, for me to send a a piece of mail to somebody's house in my district, that costs, you know, 65 cents. Um, I'm running to represent 45,000 people in 20,000 homes. And so, uh, you know, to send a single letter would cost this much. And I'd like to send three. You know, so when you break it down, people start to understand. Uh, Something else for me was that, you know, my husband and I figured out we could uh, we could learn most of it ourselves. So I didn't hire a campaign manager, which they tell you is mistake number one. My husband was my treasurer. That's mistake number two. Um, but uh, you can you can create your own Facebook. Um, you can save hundreds and thousands of dollars when you do things yourselves. Something else for me was I got a great piece of advice from Lee to create three budgets. And it was called bronze, silver, and gold. And bronze was uh, don't get embarrassed. Don't embarrass yourself running this campaign. And so I figured out what that number was. You know, what would it take for us to not embarrass ourselves? We'd have this many uh, yard signs and we'd have this many pieces of mail and we'd do uh, this many door knocks, this sort of thing. Um, and, and what would that cost? You take that number and then you start breaking it down. Oh, well, I can get this much from dad. And, uh, you know, I think my I think my friend Cassie will give me this. And, um, and then you can see pretty quickly when you really dig in that it is possible for you. And, you know, I acknowledged the challenges earlier. If you don't have a high net worth network, uh, it can be daunting. Uh, but enough small donations come together in a way that if you're frugal, I'll say it again, you can run the best campaign your district has ever seen. That's awesome. And you seem like a natural movement maker. Did you find as you were campaigning that you got to know your community even better and that people flocked to you? And if they did, when did that actually start happening? <laughs> well, I don't I'm not sure about that. It was, uh, you know, when I launched the campaign, it was it was uphill. Uh, so that was just my my very best friends out here with me supporting me in this crazy effort. Right. Um and then we, we did start to build some momentum, you know, when people, when we were able to present the contrast uh, between the choices uh, in uh, January of my campaign. So I campaigned basically summer 2017 to, to fall 2018. In January 2018, the incumbent that I was challenging announced that he would retire. Uh, so then, you know, then um, our world changed overnight and uh, and it looked like, you know, we could take this race. And so so then we had all kinds of folks coming out. And, and what what meant so much to me, uh, I had about 100 volunteers by the end of it and we knocked on 20,000 doors. Um, and, you know, when you start out, if someone had told me that, I would not have believed it for a second. But um, but by the end of it, you see that the work you put in every day builds the campaign to that point. And by the end of it, I knew that that people weren't just voting for the D or for the R, but people had met me. They had heard from me. Uh, they knew that we shared values and they felt good about casting their vote. Um, so that was a difference that, that was really powerful to me. Hmm. Josie, why is it important that you are 
representing your community in the legislature today? Well, my ego is not so big that I'll say I'm the only person who could do a good job of it. But I think I do bring some valuable perspectives. You know, I'm I'm the mother with the youngest children in the legislature. Um, so I'm the one who talks about child care. Um, you know, I had a baby um, during our legislative session in January. So I was the one um, feeding her on the House floor. Uh, you know, it, her cries were ringing out as we were talking about things like um, stripping vital safety net services for families. Um, I'm a former educator and I bring that experience uh, to the House. And, you know, if this is 100 people who serve in the Kentucky House, who mean well, who are from across the state, but very few of them have been in a classroom. So when we're making decisions uh, that are going to affect, you know, a million students across the state, it's helpful to have that sort of perspective. Uh, And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, as a former poor kid, uh, (laughs) that's a valuable perspective too. You know, Uh, I talked about the bill last year that would have stripped safety net services from families. It would have kept Medicaid and food stamps out of high poverty homes. And, you know, these were services that I relied on when I was a kid. And to share that perspective that, you know, if this bill had been in effect, you would have taken food out of my mouth, uh, you know, and I might not be able to sit here with you today. So, so those are some identities that I'm bringing with me to Frankfurt um, that are not as well represented as others. Hmm. What do you think it means to be an equity leader today? Well, for me, it's a, it's a, bringing an understanding and a, and a belief in our interconnectedness, our intersectionality, um, you know, striving for solidarity uh, and being willing to be vulnerable. You know, we've got elected officials here who, who don't want to admit uh, when they're wrong or when they don't know something. And I think that's maybe the biggest barrier we have to, to affecting change. Um, we're seeing in this, in this racial moment in America, how important it is to listen Uh, You know, I talked about the important identities that I bring to the legislature here in Kentucky, but um, but I'm not a woman of color. You know how many we've got in our Kentucky House of 100 members? Two. We've got two women of color. Uh, We've got five black people. So um, so it's recognizing that identities matter. It's not this falling back on identity politics attacks, um, you know, that we see in national news, but it's saying Uh, you know, how can we dismantle some of these barriers so we have diverse leadership? And then how do we truly listen to one another uh, and trust one another? You know, I hope that people listen to my experience as as someone who cares about poverty and is raising young children and has been in the classroom. Uh, And I hope that I'm listening to the experiences of others who've had experiences with police or, or the military or small business um, unfortunately, we're, we're not seeing the, the level of empathy and listening that I'd like to see. There's more of a, an acute compassion. You know, I'll give you the shirt off my back, um, but, I, but I won't stay for the conversation about the, the systemic challenges you're facing. So um, here in Kentucky, I'm finding, it, I'm finding it to be a tough space, honestly. And, you know, I mentioned I'm in the super minority and, and, uh, and I'm fighting for for equity for our three and four year olds, you know, uh, we know that pre-K is going to close the achievement gap. Um, we know it's going to disrupt generational cycles of poverty. Uh, we know it's going to create opportunity. We know it's going to reduce incarceration, increase health outcomes. Um, but it's, it's an uphill fight for that too. So, uh, I'm trying to stay optimistic in that every single year we're seeing change and we're seeing new voices, new powerful voices, and we're going to see some more of this November. Mm-hmm. Jose, I want to move into our short answer round. So 
Question number one, if you could snap your fingers to make one change for kids and community today, what would that change be? You think I'm going to say pre-K, don't you? I do. But I'm not. I'm going to say cash assistance. Uh, and this is this is the next frontier. This is the conversation that we, that we really don't have. Um, the, the number one thing we can do for high-poverty kids is make sure they're not in a high-poverty household. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? It's cash assistance. And America and Kentucky's cash assistance programs are absolutely pitiful. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have an awful lot of conversations about living wages. Uh, I'd like to see more conversations about how do we infuse cash in communities and in households to ensure a certain living standard for our kids. Hmm. What's one tool or skill or resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you just wish every leader in America would know about and use? It's uh, it's probably my mantra. Um, and I'm not a mantra person. I don't have post-its on my mirror. But, uh, uh, but someone said to me once, an elected uh, person said to me once, we are never without power. And, and I learned later that came from the philosopher Foucault, who I read in college and didn't understand. Uh, so never without power has guided me when I do start to get discouraged about how far we are from, uh, from the sort of change that I think we need to see and, and serving in a super minority and, and feeling discouraged. I think, well, I'm never without power. Uh, so what am I going to do this day to move it forward? What is a piece of advice you would give to your 23-year-old self? <laughs> well, it wasn't too awful long ago. Um, I was getting ready to get married to my high school sweetheart at that point. So I would say, go on with that. That's going to go. turn out great for you. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I just, I was wracked with anxiety um, about, the, about my career um, and what I could do and, and thinking that there had to be some arc to it. And, and, you know, now, uh, more than a decade later, I, I see that I've been able to work in a lot of fields with a lot of people in a lot of places. Uh, and the arc is my passion for creating change for, for high poverty families. And so, uh, I, I hope she'd relax a little bit. Hmm. So for our lightning round, these are three second answers. When you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? The shower. What's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? Digital organizing. And why is that? Uh, Bringing new folks into the fold, people who don't think that they belong. Who is a hero that inspires your work today? Elizabeth Warren. Why is that? Uh, Because she gets that it's all about income inequality. All of it. What is special, important, and powerful about mothering in office? Um, Setting the example. Showing that uh, we're not doing it all, um, but we're trying everything and we're fighting like hell for our kids and for yours. Representative Raymond, thank you for your generosity of time, insight, uh, just leading with your values every day. We've really appreciated this conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, Taylor, what do you think about Josie? I really enjoyed it. I love how she is able to continuously weave her own experience with poverty as the driver of her work and her laser focus in running for office. Josie seems like the kind of person who can get a lot of serious work done, but also still be enjoyable to work with. Oh yeah, I mean, it seems like her personality might be part of her secret weapon for getting things done. Yes, it's not easy for anyone to have to work across party lines. But it sounds like Kentucky has some great new legislation coming that could be super helpful to students and families. Totally. And I'm also a fan of her mindset of run the best campaign you've ever seen. 
It seems like Josie was a breath of fresh air in a district where there hadn't been much change in a long time, and because of that, her constituents were pretty receptive to her and her new ideas. I bet there's a lot of places all over that could use a bit of that fresh air. You know, there are. If any of our listeners want more information on Josie, how to connect with her, or to get a transcript of the episode, check out the show notes for this episode on info.educationalequity.org slash leaders table. And if you're interested in learning more about running for office, please visit the Lee website at educationalequity.org and navigate to your member homepage to get more information about connecting with the Lee staff member who supports elected leadership in your region. All right, it's time for a quick break, but please stick around afterwards so that we can hear from you about the awesome things that you as Lee members are doing in your own communities. Hey everyone, I'm David Whitehead, and I'm Lee's Director of Programs and Organizing in the DC region. One of the things that I love most about being on staff at Lee is our ability to get to know awesome members like you and support them in their leadership journeys. One of the ways we do this is by having one-on-one virtual meetings to help you understand the landscape of your region, explore your leadership goals, and develop a plan to achieve those goals. These one-on-ones are a free service to all Lee members who are interested in getting more involved with their community. You'll meet with a Lee staff member like myself, who is from your home region. In the past, Lee members have joined or led massive organizing efforts to move millions in education dollars. Others have analyzed the political landscape and run for office, while others have navigated and advanced their career in countless other ways. These one-on-one conversations are tailored to your interests and opportunities in your specific region. Sessions start out at 30 minutes, and you can sign up for free by logging into your member homepage at educationalequity.org, and near the top right-hand corner, you'll find a link to connect to your designated regional Lee contact. Please head over to educationalequity.org and reach out to us soon. We can't wait to get to know you one-on-one. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for sticking around. For this episode's Member in Action segment, we talked with Lee member Joe Greenberg, a former fifth grade English and history teacher from Mississippi, who, through a Lee fellowship, was able to make both a big impact on students' lives and on his own career as an educator. Joe was a policy advisor fellow for the Rosedale Freedom Project, where he helped reshape the way data was collected to track student progress for its very unique after-school program. It's very hard for them to gauge how students are building skills through their learning uh, in the after-school program with traditional uh, metrics, because traditional metrics gauge, you know, how much better they're doing with grades um, in, in school. Finding a rubric that gauged creativity, community activism, and even emotional growth was going to be super important because students at the Rosedale Freedom Project were taking on learning in all sorts of untraditional ways. So they have movie making there, right? They have documentarian programs, which are awesome. They also have a freedom garden where they where students are learning what composting is, learning how to make a community garden and what it means to be a community member. My goal at the Rosedale Freedom Project was to come up with a, a metric uh, to gauge soft skills that, that students are gaining. Through a lot of independent research and careful collaboration with the program's instructors, Joe was able to craft custom metrics that were able to fit the breadth of skills that the program taught its students. 
that term policy advisor sounds like I'm supposed to be advising, but a lot of times, and you're also listening to what the program needs and giving them something that will be useful for them. After his metrics were in place, Joe's fellowship was complete. And not only did the Rosedale Freedom Project have a new way to track their students' growth, but Joe was able to walk away with a new inspiration for a completely new teaching trajectory as well. That was really inspiring because it showed me the value of extracurricular activities and after-school programs. Um, for students, which is how then after that, I, I got involved teaching coding and robotics. Um, and now I'm moving into a new role as a ninth grade, uh, grade coding, robotics and STEM uh, teacher in a different district. That really sparked my interest. That was Lee member Joe Greenberg from Clarksdale, Mississippi. If you want to find out more about him or other Lee members who are making an impact, check out the episode's show notes at info.educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaders table at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Zimbano. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks again for pulling up a seat at the leader's table. Stay safe, be well, until next time.